from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Taylor Nichols. I'm Nick Richard. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. You know, I got to tell you, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things is cycling and getting coffee. Yeah, those are two of my favorite things for sure. I have a good buddy here in Los Angeles, and we often ride to different parts of the of the region and get a coffee and ride back. It's really a, a great way to explore the city and explore different coffee shops. Yeah, it's great to have a coffee in your drink holder. <laughs> but I was reading recently in Bicycling Magazine, and they had an article, does cycling have a drinking problem? And I don't think they were talking about coffee. I mean, it's you- beer, right? Yeah, it is beer. and Well, it's beer and alcohol, I guess. But I got to tell you, I also like riding my bike and having a beer. That too. Yeah, for sure. Although there's laws against that, right? Right. Well, I think there are laws against having open alcohol, you know, out on the road on your bike. We should get Jim Pocrest to come on and talk about that, actually. Our lawyer. But that's not what the article was about. The article was really about, does cycling have a drinking problem? And it made me think about that a little bit because I do associate a great long bike ride with some friends and ending it, you know, someplace having a beer or something like that and kind of enjoying the sunset or, you know, being sort of exhausted from the workout and, you know, kind of replenishing my calories with a, with an IPA beer. Cause I really like IPAs. I do get the association. I wonder if it's just, that's what we do or that's what a lot of people we know do or, but then a lot of the big rides have a bar at the end. Like the more formal rides will like uh, charity rides or. Totally. Uh, yeah. In fact, it's one of the great things that at the end of the ride, you know, you get a little drink ticket or something and you get a free beer from Sierra Nevada or, you know, one of the big beer companies that sponsor cycling, which I'm grateful for. I'm glad for their sponsorship for cycling. The article was a little bit serious though, about no amount of alcohol is really good for you. And without getting into the science of that, it, it just brought up this idea of, you know, what things do we associate with cycling? I think you had talked about there's a donut ride, right? Oh, yeah. Everything people like to do or to consume, they put together with biking. You have donut rides where they go to multiple donut shops, taco rides, same thing. They have weed rides where they go to dispensaries. Dude, I haven't heard of a weed ride. Do they really have that? I know at least a couple have <laughs> wow, happened. that's great. Uh, but anything, I mean, and then there's rides for political reasons, for social issues. There was a ride for Palestine recently. I mean, wow. I wouldn't put it in the same category as any of these other things, but it was huge. No, but I think what you're saying is that we're connecting cycling, something that we love with something that we think is important, whether it be bringing people together with coffee and donuts or standing up for an issue. I was doing a Black Lives Matter ride a lot here in Los Angeles during the pandemic. And it was a great ride. The Monday ride was a little bit more social and slow through downtown. And the Saturday ride was a, was a full on, you know, ride where people rode hard. And it was great to be involved with biking with people that cared about a similar issue. Yeah. And uh, as we're recording this, it's Martin Luther King day. And I know that uh, there's at least some people biking in uh, at least one parade for Martin Luther King. Right. Well, that's great. It's a great opportunity to celebrate his life and and work. And in many cases, I know it's not a fair comparison, but in many cases, I do think civil rights on the roads 
are are similar to the the fight for civil rights. Yeah. Well, next week, let's have Jim Pokras on and let's do talk about what the laws are for. Is there even such a thing as RUI? Are you what? Are you I riding under the influence? Like, riding like under a DUI? the influence? BUI? <laughs> well, I'm sure there is. Yeah. I do know that if you do go for a long ride and you have a beer or two afterwards, walk the bike home because the last thing you want to do is fall for some silly reason because you've had too many beers on a bike. And I've seen that. Well, that was in Bicycling Magazine. And in other news, there's a Florida website that responded to an elderly wrong-way driver crashing head-on into a group of bicyclists injuring seven people by calling for a ban on bike herds. Bike herds? You know, wouldn't that be a murder of bikes? Oh, my gosh. But, you know, that's victim shaming to the nth degree, no? People, first of all, have the right to ride in a group. They have a right to ride on the road. And here's a wrong way driver crashing head on to a group of cyclists. And somehow they're blaming the people for riding in a group. And we all know that when you ride a bike, there's safety in numbers, almost always. Like a herd. And you know, Nick, everybody's talking about this New York Times article from last week, why American drivers are so deadly. You know, the New York Times took this deep dive into the rising rate of traffic deaths in the U.S. and concluded that dangerous drivers are the reason. Yeah. The article looked at distracted driving, road rage, speeding. Yeah. And we all know speeding is a huge problem. They're right. I mean, it's stuff we talk about every episode. Uh, The truckification of the family car, the size of cars getting bigger. Right. I love that term. And uh, yeah, Angie Schmidt, who's been on the show, was credited with that and the shape of cars. And, you know, what that means is that the front grille of the car is, you know, shoulder height, head height Mm -hmm. on some people. They even have pictures sometimes of a driver looking out of the front of their car and they can't see like 10 five-year-olds in front of their car because the hood and the grille of the car is so high. Yeah, so they do everything they can to make the car safe for the driver. Right. But it's dangerous for the other road users. Yeah, it kills them, right. So that says that in the article, the bigger the vehicle, the less visibility it affords and the more destruction it can wreak. Right. But a lot of the article is about bad behavior. Speeding, DUIs, distracted driving. Yeah, and it cites a report, Stress in America, and talks about the psychological impacts of a collective trauma from the pandemic, from global conflicts, racism and racial injustice, inflation, and climate-related disasters. Right. Which, and then you get behind the wheel and, you know, you just want to take it out on somebody. I guess. I mean, the stress is high is what they're yeah. saying. And that's why so many people are being killed by drivers. But there's also been a certain amount of criticism to this article. Mm-hmm. That it was um, lazy a little bit and misleading because it let road engineers, car makers, and federal regulators avoid the responsibility of this crisis that's happening on our roadways. David Zipper, who's a journalist we've had on before, who's always posting about driving and biking and mobility, and uh, he's at MIT now. He's one person who made that point. But yeah, if it's a psychological problem, then really it's not a road engineer problem or, you know, you don't have to put speed limiters in cars or. Right. I think the point David was making and others have made about the criticism of that New York Times article is that 
you know, signs don't work. If we build our roads that allow people to speed, that allow people to, you know, drive with one hand on the wheel and the other hand on their phone, if we make a built environment that lets bad behavior rise to the top, we're going to see that because people have stress in their lives and they get behind the wheel of a car and they are given freedom in those roadways, on those roadways to drive however they want. And the consequences are it's not safe to bike sometimes. It's not safe to walk sometimes. And sometimes it's not even safe to be in a small car. I mean, it's really ridiculous. And what, they don't have stress in the Netherlands? Right, right. I don't know. Maybe they don't. That's a question. <laughs> I think they do. They just have built a road system that doesn't allow you to speed. And there was also something, Nick, recently, I don't know if you saw it, about the amount of manual transmission cars in Europe compared to the U.S., that a manual transition car means that you have to have one hand on the stick shift, not on your telephone. There is this idea that the onus should be on people riding bikes to be safe, to ride safely and wear bright colors and you know, do all the, the things that they can to, to be responsible. Right, to be safe. But you always see these pictures of stationary objects getting hit by cars, houses and, you know, well-lit objects. But right. yeah, I mean, there's a post online that has a picture of a car inside a Whole Foods in Bethesda, Maryland, and it's in the uh, produce section. And the post says, despite the fact that the oranges, lemons, grapefruit, and tomatoes were all wearing bright colors, it's a carnage there in the produce section. It's, you have all the God, bright colors. I love that. I love that. You know, the actor who played the oldest brother on Succession, I'm blanking on his name right now, drove into a pizza parlor in Hollywood. I mean, the pizza parlor has been there 30 years. It's not like he didn't see it. He just drove right into it. If a pizza parlor isn't safe... <laughs> You know, how nobody is, you know, one of the great cycling films, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman says in the film that he wouldn't sell his 1953 Schwinn DX Cruiser for a hundred million trillion billion dollars. But someone recently bought it at an auction for a hundred and forty thousand and one dollars. So uh, the late Paul Rubens, your bike is in good hands, it sounds like and has not been stolen. Because I think one hundred and forty and one thousand dollars is a fair amount of money to pay for a nineteen fifty three Schwinn DX Cruiser. But the bike in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Well, that's true. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone knows there's no basement in the Alamo. Oh wow! I got to go rewatch it. <laughs> so our news today was brought to us by Ted Rogers of Biking in LA, who also does national international bike news. So thanks, Ted, for that. One more piece of news, though, has to do with bike share and. You know, bike shares have gone bankrupt in Cincinnati, in Minneapolis, and where I am in Western Massachusetts. Yeah. You know, what worries me about that is it just feels to me like the majority of people who use bike share programs are, I want to say novice cyclists, but maybe aren't serious cyclists in the sense that they don't have their own bike to run these daily errands with. And it feels to me where I live in Los Angeles and where I have used bike share programs in Austin, Texas, in Boulder, Colorado, and in other places, that there is not enough 
good cycling infrastructure to support non-serious bikers using those bikes on a regular basis. Well, that might be why, yeah, that bike shares have gone bankrupt. In Los Angeles, there's a successful bike share, Metro Bike Share, operated by Bicycle Transit Systems. It has a great record from what I'm hearing. It's operated the bike share program for seven years, just completed a record-breaking year with 52% increase in ridership in 2023 over 2022, 267% increase in reduced fare membership in 2023, so more people are getting reduced fares. And they recently unionized. We had the organizers on the show. Our mechanic, Anne-Marie Drolet, is from BTS, is from Bike Transit Systems and, and Metro Bike Share. And I'm glad that we're seeing an increase in the reduced fare membership because I think bike share is too expensive. You know, a lot of people think that public transportation should be free. There shouldn't Absolutely. be fares. Absolutely. Yeah, and that yeah. includes bike share. But yeah. hold on, Taylor. <laughs> I didn't say okay. this yet, but okay. LA Metro wants to replace bicycle transit systems with a different operator, Lyft. Lyft, the car company? The car company. And people are concerned about this, not just because Bicycle Transit Systems seems to be doing a great job, but Lyft has a really- Anti-union track record, no? Well, yeah. They're also being accused of reducing bike share services in low-income neighborhoods and communities of color in New York City and abandoning cities like Santa Monica and LA where they had- Lyft bikes, and they have the largest wage theft settlement in New York State history. They're currently being sued by California's Labor Commission. Wow! And I didn't know yeah. I didn't know any of that. But it's also just a car company. Lyft is a car company. Yeah, primarily, and their CEO has said that they're looking to sell their bike share system, and that the purpose of Lyft's bike share is to increase access to their rideshare service. Wow. I got to tell you, I don't know much about this, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because I think it's something that's worth us looking into. Well, we're going to find out more, but uh, there's a meeting on the 18th where LA Metro Operation Committee will decide whether to move the item to the next board meeting, and so people are organizing to make their voices heard. Well, it seems to me that bike share is a big step forward in cities all across the country, and if we are cutting their legs off by selling them to automobile companies or selling them cheap to other companies and not supporting them with proper bicycle infrastructure, we're taking one step forward and two steps back. I suppose we should get a comment from Lyft yeah, or yeah. Metro. or I don't want to call them. Do you want to call them? No. <laughs> we do have another letter from a listener, though, Nick. Yeah. Okay, this is from Joey in Northampton. Firstly, I'm a big fan of the show, Northampton, Massachusetts-based listener. I really love the interview with Sarah Dykeman in the last episode. I was checking out her blog afterwards, so many cool bike tours, and I discovered her post about Dia del Peton in Cochabamba, Bolivia, at beyondabook.org. Dia del Peton sounded so cool, I just had to share it with you, in case you want to somehow find someone to interview about it could make a good story. It's difficult to imagine something like that happening, even here in my small town, but it's very inspiring nonetheless. Thanks for the excellent interviews, Joey. 
I think that was Julie's interview. And Sarah Dykeman is the cyclist who follows the monarch butterflies, which makes me think if you have a cycling story in your region that you would like us to cover or that you think is interesting that other people would like to hear about, go to biketalk.org and send us an email about it. We'd love to hear about it and possibly cover that story. So Taylor, let's get into the interviews. You did yeah. both our interviews this week. Well, the first one is with Joe Linton and Alexa Sledge. And we talked a little bit about Joe is obviously the editor of Streets Blog in Los Angeles. And Alexa is the communications director of transportation alternatives in New York. And we talked a little bit about what's the state of cycling? Where did we succeed and fail in 2023? And what are we looking for to accomplish in 2024? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. Now, I'm not going to read the whole novel to you, but that is the first line of Charles Dickens' 1859 novel, The Tale of Two Cities. And while he may have been talking about London and Paris, today on Bike Talk, we're going to talk about New York and Los Angeles. That first line resonates with me because I feel that's where we are now in our fight for safe streets, for bikeable streets. We know more about how to make our streets safe, how to make our cities sustainable, how to protect our citizens than we ever have, yet we are facing an epidemic of road violence and street deaths. And so on that note, representing Los Angeles is a longtime listener and first-time caller, <laughs> Joe Linton, who is the editor of Streets Blog LA and has been on the show many times. And representing New York City is Alexa Sledge, who is the communications director for Transportation Alternatives. Joe and Alexa, welcome to Bike Talk. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Alexa, I thought we'd start with you. Why is New York beating Los Angeles in making the streets safer for bicyclists? And really, I guess I should ask, is New York beating Los Angeles in that? And, you know, while you're talking about that, I wonder if you could bring up some of your successes and maybe even failures from this last year, 2023. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely wouldn't say blanket statement, New York is doing better than LA when it comes to protecting cyclists. Um, we did have several cyclist deaths last year in New York City. We had the second highest number in reported history in New York. So it was a really, really bad year in New York City. Definitely not a safe year, but it was the safest year um, in recorded history for pedestrians. So it's clear that we do know how to create safe streets and how to make them safe for some road users. But when it comes to people on bikes, it's still incredibly dangerous. Obviously, when we're looking at New York versus LA, uh, a lot of New York was invented, not invented, built before the advent of the car. So we just right. don't have as much car-centric infrastructure, whereas LA is the headquarters of the car. It's <laughs> where every car is um, wants to retire to is LA. Um, so yeah. there are just a lot more struggles inherent in that in trying to build something that was so clearly built for mode of transit that we know is so deadly and so dangerous and also just bad for our communities versus one that was built prior to that. So there's going to be different challenges in both of those. But then LA obviously also has incredible weather and pretty flat terrain, tons of other things that would make it an incredible cycling paradise. And I do see so much happening in LA. Um, you're seeing so many expansions of the metro system. When I drive in LA, or I don't really drive, but my parents are driving in LA, I see so much more traffic cal calming. I see so many more bike lanes. I see people on bikes. 
So I think there really is a lot of improvement happening everywhere. But of course, this was a really, really deadly year in New York and we need to be doing so much more. Right. What were some of the wins from last year in New York? Yeah, so I believe last year was the year where we built the most bike lanes in a single year. I have to double check on that. But so New York City has a law called the New York City Streets Plan that requires the Department of Transportation to build certain numbers of protected bike lanes every single year. Last year, 2023, they were required to build 50 miles of protected bike lanes in New York City. We did not reach that goal. They have not built 50 miles, but they have built somewhere in the 30s. And we track everything um, at TA. We go to every single bike lane. We check it. We measure it. <laughs> we make sure it's actually protected, um, everything like that, not taking anything at face value. So we are building protected bike lanes. Last year, they also didn't meet that metric. It was required 30 miles last year. They built somewhere between 20 and 30. So they did not meet it last year either. But we are building them. And each one of those new bike lanes is a win. We had a new bike lane built in the Bronx. Um, it's going to better connect people to the ferry, which is really essential because right. um, some parts of New York are really ferry dependent. People often forget that when talking about the transportation system. But we <laughs> do have a lot of people that commute via ferry in New York City. Um, so being able to bike to the ferry is huge. We also had a couple of critical uh, connections built where bike lanes are built so that it's really expanding our bike network. So it's easier to get from point A to point B um, because you're building in that really critical missing connection in the middle. So those are all really major wins. And we're looking forward to more in 2024, especially as session heats up in Albany starting last week. Uh, so we're looking forward to having some wins at the state level as well. Great. Hopefully you'll pass Sammy's law as far as that goes. And we've talked about that in the show a couple of times. And when you say 30 miles of new bike lanes, those are all protected bike lanes and not just paint stripes? Yes, yes, all protected bike lanes. Great. Um, they do not count paint bike lanes in the right. protected bike lane marker, but that's also why we go and check all of them ourselves. Good. Joe, it sounds like what they have in New York is a little bit like our Healthy Streets LA project here, <laughs> where when you repave a street, you have to implement the mobility plan. So when I bring you in, what were the successes and what were the failures of 2023? And what is the state of cycling in Los Angeles? Yeah, let's note that Healthy Streets LA is before the voters this right. spring. So hopefully that will, you know, get the city departments off their <laughs> but low uh output and and into really implementing bus and bike and walk improvements <laughs> while you were talking alexa i was looking I, i'm kind of the the guy who goes out and tracks every bike lane that gets <laughs> implemented in the city of la and we had a mayoral mandate a decade ago and the city was doing 250 miles of bike lane none of it protected actually at the time and so, some of it sharrows and some of it bike paths whatever so it's not it's a sort of combined figure but under garcetti and bass mayoralities bass has only been in for a year that's dropped to 30 to 40 45 miles a year and very few like five or six of those miles are protected <laughs> so it's not sound that great so let's focus on good news for just a second <laughs> there there were some some i think awesome protected some of the first real like curb protected on street bikeways concrete curbs in southern california um my favorite is santa monica 17th street did a great connects to the metro station connects to santa monica college all concrete barrier protected um 
you, you know, protected intersections with little islands and stuff. It makes me feel like yeah. when I bike there, I feel like my mom is hugging me or something. You know, it just feels really, really safe and, and like somebody really cared about me. You often bike with your daughter, Joe. And so that must be really sort of reassuring to have that kind of protection when you're biking with a child. Yeah, for sure. We, you know, we often bike on the sidewalk and stuff, but when, where there are good facilities, I, I love it when we can bike in the street, but so I, I'm just going to run down three good facilities quick. The Santa Monica one is awesome. 17th street Pasadena did a two way curb protected bike lane on a mile and a half of union street that connects to their Memorial park Metro station. And then in downtown LA, city of LA is has made a lot of progress on a project that's taking way too long. Also, that's maybe a theme here on Seventh Street. City of LA is doing somewhat similar Santa Monica curb protected bike lanes on a, on a really useful east west street through downtown Los Angeles that connects to metro stations and and a lot of other stuff. And the one other really good news is the open streets success in in southern california an event called arroyo fest shut down the pasadena freeway and you know upwards of sixty thousand people came out and walked and biked so i think and and ciclavia takes place a half dozen times a year and is super popular so i think those events are really demonstrating that you know if, when you if you build it they will come right, sort that of there's that a pent-up need there is, yeah well, if, if so, those are the wins, Joe, what are your, not your failures, but what are our <laughs> failures? Similar to what Alexa was saying about New York, we have plenty of fatalities, more than 300 the last calendar year and the calendar year before that. We're seeing rising fatalities. Then two really specific failures that, that have frustrated me. So Culver City implemented this awesome quick build bike and bus lanes through on a really central street through its downtown and connecting to the metro station and then fairly well used and then and then political leadership changed at the city and then yeah. the new council said you know rip out those lanes and stuff so i let less than a year into the project so those are they're still there there's they're in court and stuff so we'll see but um, that's sort of a, a sad note and then what's been really frustrating for me what really sticks in my crop for 2023 is Metro opened a new, what's called the regional connector, three new subway stations through downtown that that connect all kinds of light rail lines that ended. You used to have to make lots of transfers and now it's it's much more convenient for, for riders. As part of that, they were supposed to implement um, bike connections to those stations and pedestrian, you know, plazas and stuff. And lo and behold, you know, on a $2 billion project, they value engineered out the bike connections and uh, widened streets for more lanes for driving, like in front of metro stations in downtown Los Angeles in the most, you know, walkable, right. among the most bikeable parts of Los Angeles, metro really dropped the ball. And I think it was a big like middle finger at cyclists that metro saying, you know, we care more about drivers speeding by our stations than keeping pedestrians and especially cyclists safe you know to get to the densest most walkable the part of la that was built around streetcars and not right. not around the car anyway so that's been a real kick in the teeth that that i just don't understand how 
how our metro really has overlooked cyclists as sort of those aren't those aren't their customers and people speeding to get on the freeway like going past a metro station are are more important than cyclists right well i think we know as long as we make driving easy no matter how good transit is people will still choose to drive there's a certain point where we have to make driving a little bit more more difficult alexa joe brought up political leadership in culver city mayor adams has not been so warm to cyclists what's going on there and how do you think that's going to play out in 2024 with congestion pricing coming in and things like that so that's a really good question and i think that relates not only just to bike riders in new york city but also bus riders there was a big article in the new york times that came out um, last year about how a mayor adams was running he promised to be the bus mayor and he had a jacket that they made for him that said bus mayor on the back of it and all kinds of stuff and then we see him tearing down the Fordham Road project, which was going to be a busway in the second deadliest street in New York City in an area where people are very reliant on buses. There is not great train access um, and the buses are incredibly, incredibly slow. You could absolutely walk faster than most of these buses. Wow. And New York City Transit was big supporters of the Fordham Road busway. Um, the MTA entirely was a big supporter and it was really stopped at the city level. There was even a quote of the head of New York City Transit saying, I will go to Fordham Road and paint this myself into a busway if you just let me do it. And they wouldn't. Wow. Um, we have talked in the past about uh, Mayor Adams' aide who kind of cancels all these projects. What's her name? Ingrid Lewis-Martin. Ingrid Lewis-Martin. She's the one who kind of kills all these projects. She's a really long-term aide to Mayor Adams. She's been with him um, from back when he was in the state Senate. She was working with him when he was um, Brooklyn Borough President. They've been um, working together for years and years and years. And she's also very proud about how she does not ride the subway. Um, I think she hasn't ridden it in something like 20 years. Wow. Which is <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Um, and she really is not a supporter of street safety projects. So that is has been really difficult for us in a lot of different ways. Ways. Sure. But, so are you worried that this is going to affect congestion pricing? Because that's getting ready to start in New York. Yes. Yeah, so um, I was actually walking on like around Central Park on Wednesday and I saw the cameras for the first time in person. So the cameras exist. They're on the road. They just haven't been turned on yet, but they're going right. to be turned on later this year. But the good news is the tolling and turning on the tolling is really not in the hands of New York City. That is a New York State project. It's really run by the MTA and it has a lot of support from the governor. So I really do see this moving forwards. And obviously it's something we're still working on, something we're still advocating for, because this is the time people call the valley of death um, when project like, projects like this can be killed. I'm really hopeful that it will not be killed and that the people who we need to have in support of this are in support of it. Right. I think so much of that has to do if the money that is made from the congestion pricing goes back into the community, goes back into the areas of the people who are affected by it, has a long way of making a project like that work. And they're going to use that money in the MTA capital budget. So it's going to be used to, one, extend the Second Avenue subway into East Harlem, which has been a project that's been on the books for, I think, like 100 years. <laughs> right. Um, and then also it's going to be used for ADA accessibility because only around a quarter of New York City subway stations are accessible, which is absolutely crazy and completely insane. Wow. Um, if you're disabled, your ability to move around our city is extremely, extremely limited. And the MTA has been sued countless times over this, and they really need to be putting in more elevators and more accessibility options. And that's also just really expensive. So congestion pricing is going to pay for putting in elevators and everything like that as well. Great. Well, it sounds like Mayor Adams is not the bus mayor that, that he promised to be. Joe, how is um, Karen Bass? You know, I want to say it's too soon to tell. 
I think she's way better than the alternative she ran against. And I, I like Karen Bass. I like that she's tackling homeless issues, which are massive and really important. But I, I do feel like that sort of sucked there out of any other efforts that that um, that I really want her to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Right, <laughs> right. Just, sorry, I hope that's not too insulting. But anyways, let's see. She, I mean, she's got a new transportation department general manager, Laura Rubio Cornejo, who's just getting going, uh, started in September. I think it's too soon to tell. I mean, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm disappointed that Bass, you know, hardly mentioned transportation right. until the, the freeway was damaged. And then all of a sudden it was this, you know, 24 seven emergency to make sure drivers were accommodated. Right. And, and she, to her credit, she, she rode the train and she knows transit. She's ridden her bike at Ciclavia. She's, she's been out there some, but I just don't, I feel like she's, she hasn't made transportation her issue. Even, even she's the chair of Metro right now and really could be sort of setting direction for the agency. And I think she's good. I think she's focusing on an important issue, but she hasn't really shown a lot of leadership on transportation yet. I don't see big strokes coming out of the mayor's office. I see, you know, bikeways are going to come from communities pushing for safety and, and it's going to be have to be bottom up and smallish scale and not yeah. top down and big scale. Well, it, it kind of makes me sick to my stomach in both cities that are going through sort of an epidemic in street violence and we can't get the political leaders of either city to address them, you know, full on. That's dispiriting. I think what, what you mentioned, though, the Healthy Streets Initiative, mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a big sort of litmus test. If that, you know, if that squeaks through, it's going to be great. I think Metro leadership, LA City leadership sort of discounts the, the existence of folks who ride the bus and folks who ride their bikes and folks who walk. And I think that a, that a big public showing to pass Healthy Streets LA would be sort of a, a signal, a shot across the bow of, of that ship to to say, yeah, the, these are real issues that Angelinos care about and that it's time to, you know, implement plans that the city approved a decade ago right, for right. safer streets. Well, good. Well, let's hope that does pass. Alexa, looking forward to 2024, what's on your agenda for making New York City a better biking city? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of different priorities in 2024, uh, a bunch that are at the city level and a bunch that are also at the state level. So at the state level, we're obviously still fighting for Sammy's Law, as you mentioned. Um, we also are fighting for international speed assistance or speed governors. Well, what is Sammy's Law, though? I, I actually don't know what that is. So I bet you don't, you don't listen to the show, Joe, because we've been <laughs> talking about it a lot on the show. <laughs> um. So New York City actually cannot control its own speed limits. We got them lowered to 25 miles per hour a couple of years ago, but we cannot make the speed limit 20 miles per hour, even though we want to, on those smaller residential streets that make up so much of our city. So Sammy's law would allow us to finally do that. The law is named for Sammy Cohen Eckstein, um, who was killed just over 10 years ago when he was crossing the street to get his soccer ball. His mother, Amy uh, Cohen, is the co-founder of Families with Safe Streets. 
um, which is an organization that is an offshoot of TA that is entirely built of people who lost a loved one's traffic violence or they themselves were seriously injured in a traffic crash. So her son was killed and then she's been fighting for this law ever since then, but there's also a lot of other parents at her side. And so last year when we were up in Albany fighting for this legislation, she and another mother, um, Fabiola, were actually on hunger strike for a hundred hours in the state capitol and they still did not pass Sammy's law. Um, so fighting for that, we're also fighting for, um, oh, there has to be an expansion of the red light camera system in New York City that has to happen this year. So that's going to be a big thing we're looking for. Also looking for um, inter- intelligent speed assistance for reckless drivers. So how this would work is a lot of people are familiar with the drunk driving legislation, where if you are a consistent drunk driver, there's a um, breathalyzer they can put in your car. So it'd be similar if you are someone who consistently is speeding, they'd put a speed governor in your car. So it is physically impossible for you to speed. Um, we're also fighting for a vehicle weight fee. So basically how it works in New York City, New York State is no matter how big your vehicle is, even if it's absolutely massive and incredibly deadly, they're mostly paying the exact same fees to register those vehicles. And we want those fees to correspond to how heavy your vehicle is. So if you have a very, very small smart car, you shouldn't pay anything. If you have an electric Hummer, that is a death machine and <laughs> you should pay to have it on our streets. Also, because congestion pricing is happening in 2024, we really see this as a really good opportunity to be reconfiguring so many of these streets in lower Manhattan to be much more pleasant and safe for pedestrians and cyclists because we're expecting so many more pedestrians and cyclists and we're expecting a quarter fewer cars on our streets. And with these fewer cars, we really need to repurpose that space um, or else it'll be taken out by cars again. So we really need to take the space, especially on streets like Canal Street, which are a major thoroughfare that is incredibly dangerous and just incredibly horrible to walk on, yet sees so, so, so many pedestrians and tourists every single day um, and making it safe and making it so that we're really capitalizing on congestion pricing and using this as an opportunity to jumpstart so many projects that we need, as opposed to just sitting back and letting cars continue to take over. Is there a date for congestion pricing to start? There's no official date. My guess would be sometime early summer-ish. We will see. And I'm sure there'll be celebrations and stuff when the cameras are actually turned on. Great. Great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Joe, what are you looking forward to in 24? Well, Healthy Streets, we talked about. There are two camera enforcement pilots that are getting underway this year. Sooner is going to be... Um, cameras on board buses to do bus lane enforcement so if your car is parked in a bus lane in los angeles especially wilshire and sixth are are where the pilot starts but uh hopefully it expands further than that metro is already awarded a contract and will be starting to issue like warning tickets in the next month or two and then actually citations probably before summer Um, and then thanks to state legislation there will be a speed camera pilot that hopefully will get underway this year but probably toward the end of the year with speed cameras especially in school areas and you know high injury network areas places where lots of speeding cars take out lots of lives so those i'm looking forward to santa monica's really looked at Um, how do we grow our network and connect and make sort of strategic connections? It's great. Well, (laughs) thank you, Alexa and Joe, both for, you know, the work that you guys have been doing in your respective cities, but also for coming on Bike Talk and sort of informing the rest of us what's going on and where we have succeeded and where we failed and and where we can put our energies to in the the future. Um, I think 
Every year it gets a teeny bit better. Unfortunately, we've seen road deaths go up as it's you know, supposedly getting better. So maybe more cyclists on the street will make the streets safer in the long run. Joe Linton of Streets Blog LA, thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Alexa Sledge from Transportation Alternatives in New York City, thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks for having me. Thanks, it's, it's been fun. So you talked with Joe and Alexa of LA Streets Blog and Transportation Alternatives in New York City. Talked about mayors in both cities. We're hoping to get that forum with the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. Yeah, where we talk about street safety issues. You're right. It was really interesting to hear how both Alexa and Joe talked about the political roadblocks that are put up by the politicians in both cities. That's one of the main things that we have to overcome in 2024 is getting more politicians on our side to talk about street safety. Speaking of Robox, your next interview is with someone who is nicknamed Mr. Barricade. That's right. That's Vignesh Swaminathan, and he is a progressive traffic engineer from San Jose, California. Last week on the show, we were making a joke about, is there such a thing as a progressive traffic engineer, or is that an oxymoron? Well, today we have proof that a progressive traffic engineer is not an oxymoron. My name is Vignesh Swaminathan. Uh, Swaminathan. Um, uh, Taylor, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for um, being here. Progressive traffic engineer is, is, it can be an oxymoron because traffic engineers are trained to prioritize efficiency over safety. And and it's all about and why efficiency because more cars somehow is equated to better economy because more people can get places via car and that can be a very backwards thinking especially in urban areas. Right. I mean, I would even say that they prioritize efficiency of cars and cars yep. only over yes. safety or the efficiency of other modes of transportation. Yes. Yes. And I have experienced it as as being one of them. That's how I started my career actually. I started my career being the parking engineer for downtown San Jose, and I managed all the parking and figured out how to negotiate parking with the different businesses and and uh, and the school and uh, the the parking minimums that were required required, and I did metered parking. Right. Uh, and I, and from there, I started to see a lot of the the issues with parking, and slowly got my my head onto on straight. You know, right. I've always been an activist. I've always been a bike advocate activist. And I got into civil engineering because I went up to the different council meetings, commission meetings, and there was always be a person who tells me no. And that person was either a civil engineer or the city manager. And I was like, I'm going to become you. Right. And so that's right, how right. I got into this field. And now you are. Now you're a consultant at yeah. an engineering firm called Crossroad Lab, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's a company I started about six and a half years ago, approaching seven years now. My career went from being the parking engineer in downtown San Jose to doing a lot of making that into a place where we can have a lot of events. And I did a lot of the, the traffic control for marathons and races and concerts. Sure. And that's where I got the name Mr. Barricade. People started calling me that back then. And then after that, I wanted to go learn more about the ills of transportation. So I went to go work for a mega highway consulting company. It had mostly freeway interchanges and uh, highway widening. And there I started to help figure out how to not only do the interchanges, but also how to make them friendly for bicycles and pedestrians. Right. And I, I worked on some of the first times that anybody modified an interchange to make it more accessible for people in wheelchairs and bikes and pedestrians. And through that company, they started to do complete streets, but they did the complete streets from a very highway perspective. I'll get into that in a bit. And I knew that it could be done a better, faster way. 
And so I started Crossroad Lab to deliver projects fast. And I'm proud to say that all of our projects at Crossroad Lab have been built in less than a year. Wow. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm also glad that you brought up the topic, Mr. Barricade, because I've been cruising around on, on the internet the last couple of days watching all of your videos. What got you making videos? Honestly, it was the pandemic. I was not a big social media person. Actually, I had a MySpace in high school and I knew it was going to get me in trouble because I was too young, you know, right. and so I deleted all of social media in high school. And then during the pandemic, I downloaded TikTok just to see what it was, right? And uh, I started making little videos to music that I knew, not really music that was on TikTok and right. people liked my music taste. And once I got to a certain amount of following, I, 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 got, I think I moved up to 200,000 really fast. And then I started posting engineering videos uh, right. from then. And then, uh, now I have 1.8 million followers on TikTok. Well, the engineering videos are the ones that I'm really interested in because you yeah. go out on the street and show us what the road looks like now and then show us what the road could look like and show us some of the infrastructure that's being put in and you explain it in a way that opens at least my eyes to how we have built our environment how it doesn't serve people and how we could easily well maybe not easily but how we could make changes to serve a wider population better yes it originally started to show the projects that i did that i personally have built um, and I'm I, I'm blessed that I got, I got the opportunity to work on some of these projects, but I also kind of risked my license in the beginning. I knew that protected bike lanes and protected intersections were going to be a big thing. Right. And I saw how the the engineering firms were building it with full curbs and doing a and, and more disciplines were being added: drainage, utilities, swales, lighting. A swale is a little uh, uh, garden where water goes in and right. filters in before it dumps into the. The water and all these things are great. We love them, but they're added aspects to a project that can delay the project. And I've seen a lot of communities just be begging for a crosswalk, begging for a bike lane, and that doesn't happen because it's tagged onto these larger corridor projects. And so I knew that there was a better way. And so I combined my experience doing traffic control, where I was able to shut down a street or change the street for a widening project or for a sidewalk repair, and use that same engineering to do these quick build projects with posts and paint. And I argued with engineers to show that, hey, this post has even more retro reflectivity than a cone does. A double white line in the on the street, it should be a technically a barrier uh, in the MUTCD because that's what we tell vehicles to not cross a double white line when there's right. an express lane on the freeway. And that's supposed to be a, a legal barrier. And so I combined the two to help develop what protected intersections are today. Um, I worked on some of the first protected intersections in the country, and we helped put together a book after a couple of years called Don't Give Up at the Intersection. A lot of engineers want to give up at the intersection and leave right. the liability onto the user instead of onto their expertise. Right. And that book became the national standard for mo most of the country. And a lot of cities are adopted saying that this is how they want intersections to be. And I'm proud to say that I was the only professional engineer who helped to develop that document. Wow, that's great. Because we often talk about that the intersections are the weak link of the chain. That yep. if there is a protected bike route, more people will use that route. But then if they get to an intersection that's not protected, they all of a sudden realize, well, this isn't worth it for me. I'm going to go back to driving. And so we yep. lose a, a possible bicycle commuter. Yeah, that's the main thing is people feel constrained by one intersection or something to just get out of their neighborhood. And then they can't access the parks. They can't access other uh, um, the grocery store and more. And so that that is what their decision is it's just a very scary intersection and scary intersections are scary because cars can turn fast 
And that's the main thing is somebody who's waiting at the corner, cars are not only whizzing through the intersection, but they're turning fast across their path to travel. And so the protected intersection is great for pedestrians and bikes because it forces the cars that turn to be more aware and go slow. Uh, we don't mind if a car is going fast down the street to cross the intersection because we don't have conflicting movements at the same right. time, but we have right. conflicting movements when people are turning. And so that's what our, our goal was. And uh, I got one of my first project was to build the entire downtown San Jose, where we built all the bike lanes and protected bike lanes throughout the downtown. And that was one of the first one in California or in the state, in the country that had built a full network of wow. protected intersections. And we know that, you know, having a network is key. Yes, yes. Because you, if you don't do the network, then you have the same, same problem of the one intersection is built, but the next one is not. And you can't get to where you need to go. Right. And the goal of these, these protected bike lanes is not only to encourage more people to ride a bike, but encourage different types of people to ride, ride the bike and also promote safety. But I really will break it down into kind of two. You have people who bike slower, closer to the speed of a pedestrian and people who bike closer to the speed of a car. Oh, that's interesting. And, and uh, um, the protected bike lane is great for both, but more for people who go closer to the speed of a pedestrian. Right. Because they're going more, they're maybe socializing, they're riding with friends, they're riding to work, they're not trying to race cars. Right. And so legally, a lot, anybody can actually not, doesn't need to bike in a protected intersection. It's a bike way, not a bike lane. There's a te technical terminology. And so if someone who's riding a fixie bike or an electric bike, they can get into the, 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 the car lane. Yeah, the flow um, of traffic, right. Yeah, they can. And it, it, generally, if you're going more than 25 miles per hour, the protected bike lane is not, not for you. Right. Well, we see that a lot in New York City. You know, New York has done such a great job of adding protected bike lanes, mm -hmm. but a lot of the messengers and a lot of the serious riders continue to ride in the flow of traffic, yeah. which I think is okay. I mean, it it serves yeah. both purposes. And the main thing with that is, is that with any kind of crash is a speed differential between those two objects. Right. Yeah. So if a car is going and it hits a, it hits a pole, it's not moving. Car is going 30 miles an hour, the pole is not moving. So that's a 30 miles speed differential. Cars going 30 miles an hour and it hits somebody who's who's biking or walking at five, or running at five miles per hour, then that's 25 miles an hour. That can be fatal, right? right. But if a couple car is going and hitting somebody who's biking at 15 or eight or 20 miles per hour, it's less less likely to be be fatal unless they're going in the in the different direction. In the opposite direction, but, right? Yeah, right. yeah. But but well, but communicating to each and every different type of user in in the in their own shoes was essential to getting these kind of things built. Since then, San Jose has failed to uh, build any more or many of they build a couple of these protected intersections. I'm proud to say that the, the downtown streets have no fatalities over the years. A lot more pedestrian activity. But in, in some of these areas that have equity issues, the city has failed to do the safety improvements. And that's where most of the fatalities are under brand new roads. And that's because they put in this buffered uh, bike lane. And we like buffered bike lanes. But I, I would argue that they actually sometimes can make things more unsafe. How, you know? how so? So, and I'm going to get a little technical with when you. When you say right? buffered it, bike lane, are you talking a protected bike lane or is a buffered bike no, lane just, just, just a buffer? Okay. Just a buffer space. And a lot of times when the buffer is there, uh, uh, it, it drops at the intersection. It becomes a dashed lane, right? Right. And I, I would argue that it can, it, it can be worse. And the way I would say that is, let's say you had a road that had three lanes and there was no bike lane, right? The car that's in the outside lane is driving fairly close to the curb. Right. And so when they make a turn, they're forced to slow down because they're close to the curb. They only have maybe like 
12 or 14 feet. When we did a road diet, yes, it's great to take away the road diet, but you put in a buffered bike lane with no protection, then now they basically got this 12 plus 12 wide lane. There's not actually posts next to them, so they can actually kind of swerve if they're not paying attention. They can correct themselves if they're texting. Um, those posts help for not only making sure people are in the right spot, but also visually, if you see something moving fast while you're driving, then it makes you slow down because you feel like you're going fast. That's why we plant trees a lot of times right. in, the, in the olden days when we did medians and tree, trees and medians. And now if you're going straight fast and you're maybe somebody who's been drinking, someone who's been texting, someone who makes a last minute decision, if they turn from a 20 foot from the curb all the way to 20 foot from the curb, they actually can turn that corner faster right. than right. they used to because they're further away from the curb. They can actually right. make that turn of maybe 15, 20 miles an hour. Or if they get into the bike lane, now they're taking up the space of a cyclist and they're, they're merging over when the cyclist is in their blind spot. And that can be also unsafe. So unless you have the protection all the way up through the intersection, it, 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 is, it, it can be um, not safe. And that is kind of an issue between planning and engineering. Right. Well, I got to tell you, you, that that is the exact case on the arterial road right outside my house. I live in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and Fairfax, mm -hmm. yeah. which is a north south street, is is nine lanes wide in a few spots. And they did a road diet on it recently and made it down to two lanes each way with a buffered bike lane on each side. And that's exactly the case that cars mm -hmm. um, are kind of racing in the I, I don't know if that's the second lane or, you know, whatever it is, the the, yeah. the through lane of traffic. And they take that right turn going fairly fast. And that brings up another issue about right on red. We've been talking a lot about, you know, let's get rid of that if we want to protect pedestrians on the street. Yeah, we've seen that come up in New York City and other urban areas where they've already banned right turn on red in a lot of countries. No right turn red is it isn't there. But America, for some reason, they love the, our free rights uh, and they do it because of efficiency. We should be getting rid of right turn on red because we know that's where majority of the fatalities are. And if we were to put that in in, in place, then it would it would uh, save a lot of lives. Right. And traffic engineering is a standard practice. People can get a, a TE license in California or a PTOE license. And that does not talk much about bike ped safety. It talks more about the need for parking minimums, the need for traffic to get to new developments, to do a new mall. And parking minimums is one of the big things that, that adds to uh, us having more vehicles in the street. Sure. We're seeing that. And luckily, that's now starting to change a little bit, maybe not quite fast yep. enough. It you is. mentioned mm -hmm. earlier that downtown San Jose has zero fatalities. One of yeah. the things we talked about last week on the show is that San Francisco, just north of you, has failed at their vision zero. I wonder if you could address what they're doing wrong or what they're not doing right. Vision zero is, it is a hard thing to attain. To get fully zero fatalities. Well, you did San Francisco in, uh, has San Jose. Been... Well, San Jose is better than downtown, but like I said, right. the rest of the area has not. And I do believe if you were to do these type of facilities everywhere, you would have achieved Vision Zero. It is a good goalpost to have for any agency. For San Francisco has a a, a lot of is a very large department. They have a lot of different sure. disciplines in the in, in the street. A lot of political back and forth. San Francisco has a tendency to uh, not peel off the Band-Aid as hard as they, they should when it comes to these kind of facilities. Right. And, and uh, is that I, just I, leadership? What is that? Why do they do that? Is it NIMBY backlash? I think it's the, the backlash. Yeah. City staff in general, uh, and I, I, haven't, I haven't worked on a project in San Francisco, but I know the city staff in general, they the backlash is the main pain point. They can do all the engineering right, but if, once they start getting emails from people saying like, hey, no, we hate this, 
or why did you do this? And it works its way up to the mayor and council and the commission, then it, it becomes part of their job. And they would rather not have that. When you work for a public agency, the politics is more than the actual engineer, sadly. Well, Vignes, this is great information. How can people find Mr. Barricade online and see some sure. of your videos? Yeah, so you can find a lot of my videos on my LinkedIn. Uh, Vignesh Swaminathan is my name. Uh, Swam I Nathan is how the last name is spelled. You can also find me as Mr. Barricade on Instagram and TikTok. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on Bike Talk, and I'll see you online. Thank you, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Sounds like Mr. Barricade is making streets safer for people on bikes and vulnerable road users. Yeah, he's doing good work. His videos are worth seeing. Well, we've come to the end of another show, Taylor. If you like the show, like us on social media. It really helps spread the word. If you have a story that you think would be good on the show, send us a message at biketalk.org. You can support the show on Patreon. And we look forward to having you back next week. Ride safe. Stacy, with a bike thought, why do you ride? Is it for exercise or to do your part for the climate? Is it for the camaraderie of organized rides with the donuts and the beers? Or is it just to get from A to B? Maybe it's all of the above. Why don't you ride more often? Is it too cold, snowy, icy, or other times of the year hot? Do you have too much to haul or too far to travel? Do you worry about parking or the security of your bike at your destination? There's one thing that's definitely on everyone's mind, and that's drivers. Here in America, people outside of cars have been left to fend for themselves. And we hear about the number of people on bikes, even walking, that are injured and killed by drivers. And as far as I know, there isn't a driver on earth that has been killed by a cyclist. We need our electeds to actually lead. We need our agencies to hire people who understand that installing protected infrastructure makes the streets safer for everyone. And most of all, we need drivers to slow the f down. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocross and De Los Reyes with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. <laughs>